Would you travel with me this morning to Washington, D.C., to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial? Uh, it's a black, polished granite wall. It's about 100, almost as long as a football field, 10 feet high at the tallest peak. Uh, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial contains the names of all the men and women from the U.S. military who were killed or lost in action in the Vietnam combat, 58,209. As we're there that day, you, you notice a couple walking along the wall looking for the names, look at the names in alphabetical order. And when they find the name they're looking for, the lady reaches her hand up and touches the name. Her, her husband backs off a few steps to allow her this very special time. The last time she saw her brother, he was 20 years old. She was eight. He said, sis, when I get back from Nam, I'm going to college, going to be a dentist. And then about, about the, I'm going to be making some good money about the time you're ready to go to school and I'll get you through. You'll be good, sis. I'll see you when I get back from Nam. But he never came back. Also, there's a couple of distinguished-looking men to your right walking along the wall. If these guys were to meet, meet, meeting anywhere else, we would assume that they were planning this massive business acquisition or merger or some strategic plan. Distinguished-looking gentlemen. But here, as they find the name they're looking for, their emotions get the best of them. They remember where they met on the plane on the way over. The three of them had decided on one simple plan, survival. They were going to come home together, and they almost made it. Two weeks before they were to leave, an ambush and an intense firefight changed things. Also, you see walking along the wall an elderly woman. She knows exactly where she's going. She's been here before, and when she finds the name she's looking for, she raises her hand, and it's as close as she can get to her childhood sweetheart. When he left her, he left her with three boys, she would learn to be the, the father as well as the mother to those boys. She lays her rose down at the foot of the, the wall. It was their anniversary today. Now, also at the wall that day, there's, there's a family. The, the man breaks away from the family with his camera, and he's taking pictures of people at the wall. And the wife is looking at her map of monuments, and she's screaming after him which one they're going to go to next. And the prepubescent girl was rolling her eyes and complaining how boring this stupid wall is and how she's hungry and needs to go to McDonald's. And the teenage boy has got his iPod plugged in and he's just in a different world. Now, all of those folk were just as much at the wall that day as each other, physically. But the difference is the, the, the family didn't know any of the names personally on the wall. For them, the wall was a monument. For the other people, it was a memorial. Now, Jesus has given us a memorial. But my fear is a lot of folk treat it as a monument. Maybe you came in today and you saw the communion. You roll for crying out loud. I thought I was going to get out of here on time today. Oh, no. And it's a monument. Now, they, you know, I, I did a little math this week. I'm, I'm 50 years old. And when you... When you been in church a lot my whole life and if in fact i've done it once a month for for 50 years and i didn't have multiple services which i have been a part of uh, i would have been here about 500 600 times and that's a lot of familiarity it's easy for something to become a monument at that point now this is very interesting to us because to my understanding this is the only thing jesus gave us as a memorial he said there's one thing you cannot Forget. Now, memory is an important thing. 
Isn't it? I mean, if you forget something, according to how big of the thing it was, there's a price to be paid, right? Your, your mother-in-law is coming over to the house for the first time, and you're making her prize cake for her. You're going to impress her. But you lost the recipe. But you think you got it memorized. And so you work on it. And you put, come to find out you missed a couple of really key ingredients. Well, this is like a culinary disaster. There will be a price to be paid for forgetting. Maybe this has happened to you. You walk into class one day and you're feeling great and everyone else seems to be you know, preoccupied. Oh, oh, well, but you're feeling good. And all of a sudden the teacher comes in with a stack of papers and says, OK, clear off your desks. Time for the midterm. And you're, oh, I forgot the midterm. Well, there's a price to be paid when you forget. Maybe you're supposed to be home one night, but you know what? The project came and the boss and and you just kept working and working. You have to get this thing done. You get home. Everyone else is in bed. You flick on the light to the kitchen and there's the kitchen table. It's got linen tablecloth on it. There's a couple of candles that were lit earlier that night. China's there and you think, oh, no, it was my wife's birthday dinner. There's a price to be paid if you forget, right? Likewise, with us in communion, there is a price to be paid if we forget. Now, understanding that, that, that memory is not simple, simply a recollection of, of facts. It's a, especially in Scripture, it is, is a consciousness of, of the data, but then living in light of it. For example, I, I can remember that I've got the midterm exam coming up. But if I'm constantly, I'm remembering that, I just don't never act on it. It's still not going to do me any good, right? I am going to pay the price as if I forgot. We, we need to understand and then we need to apply it. it it's, it's very important when we start thinking we're in a serious way to grow. When we start thinking about uh, at the end of 2012, we want to look back and not see 2012 as a, a spiritual wasteland. We want to, to know that we have grown spiritually, that that was our quest. It was our desire. We had a God-ordained plan to get there. This has to be a key part of it. Listen, if we have everything else going on in the plan, but it's not in a consciousness of his love for us, then it's all legalism. If we're able to attain anything, it's not going to be good. Look at what uh, Peter says, First Peter 1.9. He says, but if anyone does not have them, the them are signs of spiritual growth. If he does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. A a memory uh, of what this represents is is huge. It's key. It's mandatory for us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look over a very familiar passage it's the passage of when the last the last supper, when when it was inaugurated, communion was inaugurated. But I don't want you to turn there yet. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And while you're turning to Exodus 12, let me read you the first verse of the, the passage that we're going to be looking at predominantly this morning. It's from Matthew 26, verse 17. It says, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This this is very important. We're going to look at some technical stuff for just a couple minutes. But stay with me because it's important that we understand the context of when the Last Supper, of when communion was inaugurated. We understand what was going on in their mind that will help us interpret the, the, the passage much better. Well... 1900 years before this passage, 
Jacob, Abraham's boy, heads down to, to uh, Egypt. He's got his family of like 70 people. He's tagging along with them. They're just going to hang out with Joseph for, a little, Joseph for a little while. They spend 400 plus years. The, the 70 turns into 2 million and they become slaves of Pharaoh. Well, well, Moses is in Pharaoh's court saying, let my people go. Thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh says, listen, I've got 10 gods and one of them's name is not Yahweh. So thank you very much. But no, thank you. Nine plagues later, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. They're not going anywhere. That night, though, the 10th plague is coming. The angel of death is going to come over the camp. And the firstborn of every home, including the crown, crown prince, will die. But God makes provision for his people. And that's Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. It says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them in verse six. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse seven. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where they may eat the lambs. Uh, verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. According to Leviticus 23, this was their very Israel's very first holiday. And from this point on, they were supposed to celebrate this every year. Uh, by the time of Jesus, Matthew 26, this had been being celebrated for 1,500 years. And according to Josephus, during the time of Jesus, Temple Mount, about 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered. The blood would flow down the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley ankle deep, so, so much so that the, the Kidron River would flow crimson, deep crimson. I mean, I mean, the temple was a slaughterhouse. This was a, 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 a horrific, horrific thing. But it reminded the people when they when they would celebrate this, when they would have this very solemn time, because Passover was the, the slaughtering of the lamb and a very solemn, very solemn dinner of reminding that blood had to be shed for, for their deliverance, that the angel of death would pass over them. Now, that happened on the 14th of Nisan today. It still happens on the 14th of Nisan. Different Jewish calendar, but that is our Good Friday. Uh, that's important because on the 15th of Nisan, a second Jewish holiday begins. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you're still in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, this is after his child was stricken and dying. He said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. That's why this was the feast of unleavened bread. And it was it was a week long celebration, the Passover one night, very solemn night, followed by a week, a real celebration, celebrating when they were like fourth of July, when they left Egypt and they were now free and they were out of slavery. Well, these two were so butted up together 
that sometimes people, Jesus' time, referred to the whole nine yards as Passover, or sometimes they referred to the whole nine yards as the feast, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's kind of what you got in Matthew 26. On verse 17, when it says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, that would have been Passover, and he lets us know. Uh, when he says, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So that, that's what's that's the context. That's what's going on. Verse 18. He replied, Jesus is talking. He says, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, Mark lets us know that what Jesus told his disciples is go into the city and you'll see a man carrying water. Follow that guy. And because the gals carried water, he would have stood out like a sore thumb. And you have to ask yourself, why didn't he just say, go to Simon the Tanner's house? I mean, the the assumption is that this was a friend. They all knew people in Jerusalem. They probably didn't just pick a stranger and went out to his house. This was probably an acquaintance of them all. But why did Jesus, why didn't he say go to Bob the perfumer's house? You know, go, why did he say this? This is kind of clandestine approach. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke's going to let us know that he didn't send them all. He only sent two. He only sent Peter and he sent John. Now, many hands make light work. Why didn't he send everybody? And why the secrecy? Well, Jesus knew that Judas was right next to him had just signed a contract with the, with the Pharisees to betray him. And Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. And if, Judas would have, if Jesus would have said, go to Bob the perfumers, then Judas is on his way out the back door, going to the Sanhedrin saying, tonight, Bob the perfumer's house. That's where Jesus will be. Halfway through the, the, the feast, the dinner, they're going to break, the temple guards would break through. And it would end the Last Supper prematurely. Now, what Jesus is doing here is very important. Uh, he is preventing a premature betrayal. So he knows this Last Supper is very, very important. Yes, he was going to go, but he chose the time of his betrayal. This is, this is huge because it tells us, it tells us that, that uh, when he's talking about this time, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. And then John Let's us know that having loved his own, he, he loved them to the end. He now showed them the full extent of his love. You would think, oh, the next passage is the crucifixion, right? The full extent of Jesus' love. The next passage is the Last Supper. This was so important for Jesus. Now, here's, here's what we got to think. This is good for us. Jesus knew that his apostles that night, the next morning, were going to face a trauma that they, they weren't expecting. All the wheels were going to come off. They were going to be underneath spiritual attack like they never had before. And he knew they weren't ready for it yet. He had to have that time with them to train them. This was going to be an incredible night because there was going to be some major discipleship happening that night. He was going to prepare his people for that evening. The evilness of mankind could not derail it. Busy schedules could not postpone it. It was going to happen. Because his disciples needed it to happen. Now, here's the deal for us. Jesus shepherds us with a view to the future. He knows what's going to happen. We don't. But he shepherds us today, preparing us for that. Which is, I mean, it's why he can say that no temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. And I won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able 
He prepares us. Now, when we hit those times, you've got to know we don't feel prepared. But if we're following after him, he makes sure we're prepared. When we come to the table, we think of his love. One of the, the things we have to, to consider is how much he loves us and he shepherds us. I don't know what you're going through right now, but you do need to know. He knows. And he's been preparing. And you might think, I'm not ready for this. I can't handle this. Yes, yes. He's been there. Sometimes he, he, he prepares us through a message, through written word, a note from somebody, through reading his word, through somebody waking up in the middle of the night to pray for us, through a, a word that's shared in the hallways. Uh, he's got his own ways. Psalm 127, he gives to those he loves even in their sleep. He can prepare us however he desires, but he always does. We're never unprepared. He's shepherding us. He's not up in heaven waiting for us to come one day. He says, I will never leave you and forsake you. He's here. He's shepherding us today. Now he has this week in the face of what's going to happen to us. Uh, also, as, as, we, as we look at this, um, as we look at the table, as we remember, we, we've got to remember that he also calls us. Verse 20. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Now, when they came in that, that, that night to the party, it was truly a party. I mean, they had the party hats on because they knew this. They, they, they just a couple days ago, they came into Jerusalem and the crowds were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus was accepting this. Jesus never accepted this. They tried to make him king. He said, no, 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 no. But here he says, OK, yes, I'm your king. And so what are they thinking? They're thinking the kingdom is right around the corner. I'm standing next to the Messiah. This guy's bulletproof. He has raised the dead. Nobody can mess with him. I watch this guy walk on water. And no one can. And I'm standing right next to him. I'm hanging with the Messiah. This is a good place to be. The kingdom's going to come in in a couple of days. And maybe I'll be the vice Messiah or something. You know, they start the, the, the text. Let us know that that's what they're thinking. Kind of. They are, they are arguing with each other about who's the greatest. Who's going to get the uh, corner office? Oh, yeah, I got more faith than you. I got more faith than you. And so they've got this argument going on amongst themselves and they're laughing. And it's a, it's a great environment other than the argument. And, and lo and behold, Jesus stands up and he says, excuse me, excuse me. I've got an announcement to make. One of you will betray me tonight. Well, you can imagine the, the party. I mean, it's just gets unplugged. And suddenly they go from festive to very sad. Have you been very sad before? And they begin to ask. They don't declare, not me, Lord. They're asking. Not, not me, Lord. Right? It's not me. I'm not the one. They begin to ask. Uh, it's, it's, it's where that. But look what it says. Then Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as has been written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, can you imagine what Judas is thinking here? Everyone's laughing and joking. And he's kind of sitting there going, yeah, well, you know, they're kind of clueless, you know. And, and but, but OK. And then Jesus is there. and He feels bad and all. But it's business. So what do you do? And everyone's kind of talking and joking. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. I can imagine Judas. <laughs> Who told? What does he know? Surely the Sanhedrin wouldn't leak this. <laughs> now, he should have figured this out. That you can't pull one over on Jesus by now, right? He should have known this. But somehow he thought he could still be secretive. 
And it's interesting because the other texts let us know that, that Judas would have been sitting on Jesus' left. Now, it's important it's because the left and right are seats of honor. You don't choose those yourself. The host chooses those for you, which means that night when they all got in the upper room, Jesus went for Judas and said, Judas, I want you to sit next to me tonight. Imagine Judas. <laughs> Tonight's not a good night, Lord. Listen, I feel better at the end of the table. Can we just? No, 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 Judas. The seat of honor. I want you to know how much I, I honor you, Judas. I really do. What's Jesus doing? And then John lets us know that this was the time where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now, that was such a lowly job that a Jewish servant could not do this. Only a Gentile servant would do something like this. And yet Jesus takes off his robes and he washes their feet. And he comes to Judas and he's gently caressing Judas's feet. Now, in our culture, we lose something. But this is an incredibly intimate thing. He's telling Judas, Judas, I consider you worth so much more than myself. Judas, I just want you to know I would die for you, Judas. What is Jesus just trying to make him feel bad? And then when he says this thing here, he says that that uh, it would be better for him if he had not been born. Is Jesus looking over at Judas saying, you think you want you just wait, buddy, and there'll be a judgment one day. Is that what he's doing? Uh, you know, and, and then it, it sure seems John lets us know that, that when uh, John asked him, who is it, Lord? He looked over at John. He said, he who I dip the morsel and put it in his mouth, he's the one. Most probably the rest of the apostles didn't hear this, but, but John did. He puts that, he feeds Judas again, especially in this culture. And you, you didn't mess with anyone else's food. This was an incredible sign of, of intimacy and closeness. Judas, I'm, I'm providing for you. I, I really honor you. What Jesus is trying to do here, every commentator that I've picked up on this, is he's appealing to Judas. You know, there's no prophecy that says Judas has got to do this. Jesus would die. The Sanhedrin would get him one way or the other. But wouldn't it be incredible testimony if Judas could have stood up and, and repented and said, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Wouldn't that have been incredible? And Jesus was here appealing to Judas. Judas, you don't have to do this. But Judas... Uh, he rejects the appeals in verse 25. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Imagine everybody else. Surely not I. Surely not I. And it comes to Judas. What's he do? I mean, he's got to say something, right? He can't just pretend like he didn't hear everybody else. He's got to follow suit. So he says, surely not I, Rabbi. And again, I'm not sure how much stock to put in this. But if you look in verse 22, all the other guys said, surely not I, Lord. Master, but Judas says, surely not I, rabbi, teacher. He's not going to go down the road of saying, you're my master. You're the one I'm subservient to. Now, here's the deal. Communion. Uh, this, let me mention this. And it's controversial, but I, I, think, I, I, think, I, I think I'm right. Um, I believe that the timing here is at this very point, Judas is dismissed from the meal before uh, the meal proper. Communion is not for those who view this as a monument. It's just a religious exercise. It's just not. It's not for those who can say he's my rabbi. It's for those who call him Lord. 
It's for those who view this as a memorial and know him. And again, I don't mean to offend anybody, but uh, just hear, hear my heart on this. If you haven't surrendered your life to him, when we pass out the, the elements in a little bit, don't participate. Just, just let it go by you. It's okay. It's not, not a problem. But I also need to let you know this. You can participate today, clearly, because as Jesus appealed to Judas, you know what? He is appealing to you as well. He's saying, I know what you're going to do. I know where you've been. I know who you've been meeting with. I know that. But you need to know, I love you. You don't have to keep going down that road. You can surrender to me. I'm going to die for you. And where you sit, maybe you've been here a million times. You've done this is is a it's it's been a monument for you, but never as a memorial because you've never surrendered your life to him. You can right now. So take a second. Would Would you bow with me for just a second? And, and, and where you are, you can say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Thank you for loving me, knowing what I'm about and loving me anyway. Thank you for dying for me. I believe. Now, if you've committed your life, you surrender your life this morning, just kind of a side note thing. Located in the pew in front of you is a little... Uh, Yes card. You can check, grant, pick that out, fill it out, check it. And then at that get connected table in the hallway, uh, hand that in. All you do is hand that in. And they've got, we've got kind of like a intro to Christianity packet for you. And we would love to give that, give that to you. But, but Jesus appeals. So when we come here, we're going to do this, what, 12 times this year? When we come, one of the things we recognize of his love, he shepherds us, but he calls us. We're not here because we're so wise, because we figured it out, because we're so intelligent, because he he's called us. His love has brought us here. Also, as we come, we have to keep in mind the sacrifice that he paid in verse 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Again, this is uh, for them the Passover. Very, we, this is something like the Thanksgiving. You know, they really look forward to it. But on, Thanksgiving in my house, you know, you say amen, and then everybody kind of, ah, you know, they just attack the food, attack the meal. Here, it was very, very structured and very, very intentional. And everything on the table had a meaning. And they didn't have stuff on the table just because they got it on sale or it was in season. Everything there had a special symbolic meaning. And there were, there were four different cups and different prayers you prayed at different times. It was a very, very intentional, uh, specified e- event. But it symbolized the time again when, when Jesus, when, when the, uh, God sent uh, the angel of death, that the blood on the, lamp po- on the post of their house allowed the, the angel of death to pass over them, and they did not face the judgment. This was a very special time. It was like the stamp of God's approval on their nation. This was what it meant to be Jewish. This was a very, very important time. And during the meal, Jesus picks up the bread, and he says, this unleavened bread, I know, for the last 150 decades, all of our people have always, always thought that this symbolized you know, the unleavened bread that, that we had when we left Egypt because we left in such a hurry. And that's what it meant. But tonight, I'm changing that. From this point on, whenever you take this meal, whenever you have this bread, doesn't mean that anymore. 
It means this. I want you to think of my body broken for you. It's really huge what he's saying here. He's saying that whole Passover deal, all of that was nothing more than a shadow pointing to me. All of the Old Testament points to this night. All of the New Testament, we would look back to this night. It's a huge time. Then he, then he took the cup. And it says that then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus holds up the cup and he says, I know for the last 1500 years, this represented to us the, the lamb's blood that, that was shed to put on the, the mantle of the house uh, so that the angel of death would, would pass over. But I'm changing that meaning too. from this point on all the future. Now, this is my blood that's going to be shed that you won't have to face judgment. It's a picture of his blood in his body. Now, at this point, some folk might say, well, hang on. What do you mean a picture? What do you mean symbolic? What do you mean representation here? It doesn't say that. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Well, this is kind of confusing in our culture. So let me let me let you know why we believe this is a memorial. Uh, several different things. First of all, Jesus spoke in metaphor often. John six, he says, I am the bread of life. We don't think he was a piece of bread. We recognize Oh, it's a metaphor. He's talking spiritual side. Yeah, got it. And John eight, he is the light of the world. We don't think he's a literal light. We think, oh, he's talking spiritual darkness, spiritual. It's a metaphor. Got it. John 10. I am the door. We don't think Jesus was a literal door. We recognize. Oh, it's the way in. Oh, got it. It's a metaphor. John 15. Jesus is standing there and he says, I am the vine. He really wasn't a vine. Literally, we recognize it's a metaphor. It was normal for him to speak that way. Also, this night. Jesus, Jesus body was there, but it was intact, right? It was it was on his skeleton. He was not broken yet. Now, everything we know about Jesus physically, Jesus physical body is that his physical body was not omnipresent. It couldn't be. He couldn't be in, in Jerusalem and Bethel and Jericho all at the same time. He had to walk from one of those places and his body was in one place or the other. The fact or the thought, not the fact, the thought that his physical body could be in Erie and in Jakarta and in Paris and wherever people are having communion is opposite of everything we know theologically about Jesus' physical body. His blood was here this night as well, but his blood was still in his veins. And if somehow he could mysteriously get it out of his body without him being cut into the cup, you got to ask why couldn't they have done that the next day? Why did he have to be brutally crucified? Why couldn't somehow that same process have worked? Uh, we, we see the text, and this is huge. Uh, when he says, verse 27, he took the cup and he gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, or drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Look, then look what he says. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine. Did it change back? Was it fruit of the vine and then change the blood, then back to fruit of the vine? 
again, keeping in mind the context, the whole Passover meal was purely symbolic. Everything on the table was symbolic. No one thought that the bread that they were breaking was truly the bread from 1500 years ago. No one thought that the cup they were drinking was real blood from to represent the. They recognized it was wine. This was a very symbolic time. And then the rest of Scripture would point to this as well. Hebrews, um, Hebrews nine. Verse 25, it says, nor did he, as Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, which is what some say happened. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 10, it says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. It's. And understanding whenever we, we come here, whenever we come, we, again, we do this multiple times yet this year, to, to remember not just that, that he, he shepherds us, he's shepherding me today, but the reason I'm here is he's called me and the incredible price he paid for me. Now, how does this work in our daily lives? Let me give you an example. Uh, let me use men and could equally use, use women on this, but let's say, guys, you're on a business trip. And you get on your plane. And when you sit down in your seat, you recognize that the gal right next to you, a pretty gal, she's, she's reading a Christian book. And so you ask her, are you, are you a believer? Well, absolutely. And she starts sharing her story. And about a year ago, when her husband left her, her life crashed and she came to know Christ. And just a, a vibrant testimony. And, and she's so excited about Christ. And she's sharing it. Gets you excited. And so you share your testimony. And it, you have a wonderful conversation all the, all the time to wherever you're going. You've had such a great time. You don't even notice when the plane touches down. Well, as you, you exit the plane, you find out that you're both in the, the same hotel that night. So wanting to be a good steward, you t- share a cab to the hotel. And when you you get there, you you say goodbye to each other, you part ways, but you find yourself thinking, not not, nothing trashy, but you find yourself thinking about her all the way up to your room. Not just a neat girl. Oh, that was great. Great. Had enjoyed. Very enjoyable. You change and you go down for the uh, restaurant down in the the lobby and you're you're in line waiting. The maitre d' is getting ready to come to you. You'll be next. And all of a sudden there's a tap on your shoulder. And you turn around and it's her. She's going to eat there, too. Well, you guys start talking again. You pick up where you left off on the plane as you're laughing. And all of a sudden, the maitre d' comes and he says, table for two? Like, sure, why not? Okay, sure. And so you eat and you have about a three and a half hour dinner. You just have so much fun. You laugh, you cry, you enjoy, you click together. It's just wonderful. You don't want it to end. And then she says, you know... I've heard that the river along the, the, the our hotels on is just beautiful at night. And I 
could use a walk. Would you like to walk with me? Absolutely. You can't let her go out on her own. And so certainly you run upstairs to get your, your jacket. And as you put your key in the door, you notice your wedding ring. You walk in just a little bit slower than you thought. You sit down on the end of your bed, just kind of staring and thinking of that day when you got it. And you pull out your wallet and there's your wedding picture even. And the picture is some of the products of the love of you and your wife, your children. And so you lay that there. You go back down into the lobby and you say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I need to call home and check in. And I appreciate getting to know you. Goodbye. Throughout our, our week, throughout our month, perhaps we've been flirting with stuff that we probably shouldn't be flirting with. And stuff has been flirting with us. And it's good to come see our spiritual wedding ring and to be reminded who I belong to. Who is committed to me? Who has bought me? Who, who, who my Savior really is? And Paul would remind us every time we come, one of the purposes of coming is to stop and do that very thing. Examine and to look and to see and to see. Am I not living as I ought to be living? And so what we want to do is, again, as we think through this this plan of growth for 2012, uh, living in a constant consciousness of the gospel has to pervade. You know, they say that our, our lives are like waffles. And as Christians, you know what? You have the, the gospel in one of the little boxes. Uh, now, if you notice, you've got all the other boxes, your finances and your schooling and keeping your lawn straight and your kids' games. And, and, but they, they never really touch each other. But the gospel ought not to be a little box for us. It ought to be like the syrup that touches all of the boxes where you cannot live a box Without the flavor of the gospel. You cannot live any part of your life without this touching it. That that has has to be our goal. So so that commitment. God, would you help me to remember when I come here, I'm going to to discipline myself to not let my mind be flying in a lot of different directions. But to remember 